This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Mike Lynch. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Michael Barr, and this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Today, we have a special guest joining us, author, screenwriter, and former pro hockey player Bill Keenan is with us. Bill has a really interesting story. He grew up playing junior hockey in New York. He turned pro in Europe, only later to find a job on Wall Street. And now, Bill's critically acclaimed book, Odd Man Rush, if that sounds familiar, that's because it's been parlayed into a movie. Bill, in our tradition here on Bloomberg Business of Sports, like we're at the uh, sports bar, what it is. Nice to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Scarlett Fuel, we got we to gotta tell you that uh, she's a very good hockey player. And, uh, by the way, is also uh, a big fan of hockey. Big fan of hockey, yes. Very good hockey player. You need to put quote marks around that. (laughs) I practice with a team called the Mother Puckers, which are moms of kids in youth hockey. And sometimes we get some free ice time and we're allowed to go on the ice. And uh, other players walk by and watch us fall all over the place. And they kind of laugh and wonder why we get so much ice time. But... Bill Keenan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to bring you on because the movie is now out. This is a book you wrote a couple years ago, and you wrote it after you returned from your sojourn abroad, where you tried to play pro hockey. And you did for a while. But the goal was always to come back to the U.S. and be and, and turn into a pro player here. That didn't quite happen. So walk us through the thinking behind writing a book and then getting it turned into a movie. Well, first of all, Scarlett, there's no shame in that. But when I thought I had made it in in Europe, I actually remember the final game I played, and and we were kind of getting rushed off the ice because there was a figure skating event up next. So that that's kind of where I that was where my NHL dream stopped. But uh, I basically finished hockey in 2012. You know, I, I had to find some justification for falling so short of the ultimate dream you know, to figure out why, why did I do this? And, and, and ultimately it it turned into me just writing down my thoughts and, and that turned into the book. And so it was sort of a way to, to make sense of spending a lifetime trying to get to something that I, I just, you know, fell flat on my face. I I just want to take us through that when you're writing a book, can you, can you take us through that process of, you know, what made you write the book and how did you go about doing that? I think it all sort of stemmed from, I, I, I wasn't some bookworm growing up, but in college, a lot of the experience, when I look back on it, was writing these emails on, on a Sunday morning, you know, or I guess it would be Sunday afternoon when you wake up. And, and the goal was to write an email to, to the rest of the guys on the team and, and see if you can get a response and hopefully they, you know, they laugh at it. And, and that, that was the only goal. And, and I remember when I stopped playing hockey in 2012 and I, and I started writing basically because I, nobody wanted to listen to, to me anymore, talk about it. And I kind of went back to those emails and I thought that's the, you know, I, I had written a, an original draft of this book and it was just painful because it was all sentimental 
and and I thought that just wasn't the experience that's not kind of the sensibility of that world. And I thought, why don't I go back to how I was thinking when I was writing those emails to my teammates, but just write 300 pages of that. Hmm. And, and, um, and so that's kind of where that came from. I, I, there was no intention to, to you know, then, then getting it published was a whole nother nightmare, but it was fun just doing it. And then that's the closest thing I got to hockey was writing because I was there. I was, that was basically everything else was blocked out. And, and you're sort of in that, of your own world the same way you are when you're on the ice we went to the same college and i can remember it during my senior year around january guys would get their hair cut they'd be clean shaven they'd buy a cheap suit at the harvard coop for 79 bucks and they'd all march into the office of career services for interviews with investment banking with venture capitalists because that was the path they were going what what little voice was inside your head saying i'm not going to do that i'm going to go in another direction I don't know. If there were a lot of loud voices coming from other people <laughs> saying you're not going to get a job here. So it was it, it worked out. As, it was kind of mutually decided between me and and the recruiters that I wasn't fit coming out of college for a job, um, you know, at, at a desk. But but um, it, it was really the, the for me the the college experience. I, I wasn't really able to fulfill um, kind of what I had hoped to. So it was it was a matter of being able to end hockey in my own terms and. And having spent at that point 22, 23 years playing it and, and knowing that I needed to kind of end my career on the ice, it was something that it, it wasn't really even a decision. It was just something I was going to do. So one thing that I um, really enjoyed about your book are the little anecdotes. And I guess this goes back to the emails that you would write to your teammates to make them laugh. And one of them was about how the culture in Northern Europe is so different from the culture here in North America. For instance, on picture day in Europe, uh, everyone made sure that their hair was slicked back and they looked really good. So you had to put some hair gel in your hair to the point where when you played in the game afterwards, the gel was melting and getting in your eyes and you were going blind while you were on the ice. Um, there's certainly a contrast there. I, I wonder if you could give us some observations about financially or the business model of hockey in Europe versus in North America. Well, I knew to that point you can't use gel, you got to use wax. Ah. Oh, man, I learned that. That was the takeaway there. But, but no, it was really exacerbated in Europe, especially at that time, because I, I graduated in 2009, and I wasn't following the S&P at that time. But I can tell you it was, it, it was so obvious when I got to these towns, because really I, I was playing in a place that, you know, you don't, the way I describe it, you don't fly to any of these towns that I've played in. You, you fly, then you take a bus, then you take a train, then, you, you know. So there's, these are walk. really tiny places. Yeah, I mean, snowmobile. At one point, there was a snowmobile. There was a, there was a team that gave players a snowmobile, and that was their mode of transportation. <laughs> but but we, we would, you know, it was so heavily reliant upon sponsors. And, and you see it in European soccer, but that's, I mean, what we see there are these massive companies. I, in Sweden, we had, like, a local energy company that was the main sponsor. And, and so you'd have two or three guys on the team actually worked at, at you know, they, they work at the power plant, huh. um, like after practice. And so, they're, they're, I mean, there were times when we'd be on the bus and, and all of a sudden you, the brakes, you you'd feel the brakes hit and you kind of knew this, this team, it happened twice. The teams actually folded in the middle of the season. One was literally when we were on our way to go play them just because the sponsor, the main sponsor, the company went broke. And oh. so, um, so it was, you know, it, there, there's a lot of volatility in that world. You'd have arenas that were built. 
think the same thing you see sometimes at a whole in a whole nother degree here with companies building buildings for themselves, right? Is sort of like a barometer for maybe kind of they're over their skis. You'd see teams that would they had a big sponsor, they'd maybe build a new rink or they'd do something that was over the top, and then it's kind of the beginning of the end. And you just don't want to be on one of those teams. I would like to hear your story when later on you got a job on Wall Street. First of all, where did you work? Take us through that process. After I retired in 2012, I, for some reason, I kind of thought I'd just waltz in and find a job, and, and I still didn't, you know, have a sense of what I wanted to do. So it just, it, it was really not, I, I was not really grounded. And so I, I decided to go back to business school. At business school, I figured I'd get some time and, and some education to see what the opportunities are. And I ended up not really finding something I really wanted to do. And so I ended up in investment banking, which I think a lot of people do just as sort of a, a, a way to, you know, keep the options open and all the stuff that they market. So I went, I worked for about two years at Deutsche Bank in the corporate finance division. I want to go back to I the do movie. not do it anymore. <laughs> when you watch the movie, a lot of times people look at the movie and if it's about their life, they either smile afterwards or they cringe. They go, that <laughs> never happened. That wasn't me. That isn't how it happened. Were you happy with the outcome? And was there anything in there that made you cringe? Um, nothing made me cringe. It's so difficult. You take an experience and then you to, to turn it into a book is a, is a solitary endeavor. And, and so I could... I, I could spruce up what I wanted to spruce up and, and omit what I wanted to omit. And the, the thing about a movie is that, that you're, you're talking about distilling something even more. It's much shorter. And so you really have to pick and choose what are the moments that, that capture what you're trying to capture. You, you also have, have to rely on a ton of people. And it's an incredibly collaborative experience, which, you know, I would say there's, there's a lot. There's, there's things that I think were were enhanced because we got such a great group of actors and the director and the producers. So they sort of imbue it with their experience. But uh, overall, I, I was happy with, to me, it was just keeping the essence and the authenticity of the world that I experienced because that's, that's to me, what was the most meaningful thing. And so I think I'm, I'm hopeful we got that right. Um, there's details like anything else that, uh, you know, that in the book, in the movie that I think, man, I could have made that better. It's like, it's, you know, when you you have a kind of a fumble on a breakaway, and you think that why didn't I just I could have gotten my backhand, and, but but that's that's how it works. I watched the movie. Uh, I saw an advanced version of it, and it was really good. It was very it, it tied together everything, and it was less about hockey and more about that sense of pl- wanting to play hockey and the hockey culture and the locker room culture. And you mentioned how collaborative it was. There were a lot of uh, members of hockey royalty involved or people involved um, from the hockey community, including a son of Wayne Gretzky, a daughter of Mario Lemieux, and I believe Luke Robitaille's offspring also played a role, and, and the producers uh, were also involved in hockey as well. Talk about the community of people who came together, and I mean, did you guys just talk about hockey when you weren't directing and, and filming the movie? It, yeah, it was, it was, this all stemmed from Karen and Howard Baldwin, who were the, the, the main producers, as well as the Slater brothers, um, and, and they have incredible hockey lineage. And and they you know just sort of worked with the timing we had we had Trevor Gretzky, Alexa Lemieux, and Jesse Robitaille, also Dylan Playfair, who's who's another great up and coming actor, um, on a show called Letterkenny. 
and they they were all at the age that the roles that we wrote like we didn't have anybody specific in mind like i'm not creating you know, I'm not creative. I'm writing about hockey because that's really all I know. So yeah. I, I wasn't. I just needed to stick to something I understood, and it just so happened you had five or six actors and musicians that were sort of in my boat that are up, you know, trying to make a name for themselves and enter this world and of of acting and and entertainment. So it was there was a lot of hockey talk, you know, and, that, and that's another thing. It, it what was so fun about this experience was that it was me being background hockey people, which kind of, you know, and, and, and as a writer, I remember thinking when I watched the film the first time, the, my two favorite lines of the whole thing, I didn't even write. They were ad-libbed, hmm. one by Trevor and one by another actor. And, and that's the same. You know, it's like when you score a goal, if you watch the playoffs now, if you watch really carefully, if someone's, and I, I'm thinking there was an Anders Lee goal specifically that just happened, where when you score, it's such a great feeling. But it's so much better when you see there's that guy that made an incredible play, an incredible pass, and you and 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 to see basically you do something and have it then, you know, enhance someone else's sort of contribution. That right. that is like it's incredibly gratifying. Obviously, since you played hockey on a pro level, you have a unique insight to today, where the NHL is playing in a bubble uh, in a COVID nineteen world. Your thoughts, how do you think they're doing, and your thoughts about how the, the whole pandemic has affected the NHL? I mean, I, it's it's stunning how how incredible the NHL has handled the situation. I mean, the fact that I can sit here and, and work and then have one monitor just streaming NHL games the entire day. And it seems like it's gone on. (laughs) (laughs) Starting when they start. So I I have like two hours in the morning when there are no games that I can get work done. But um, it's, it's yeah, I I, I mean, as far as I can tell, the the, the amount of time and effort that went into this, it's like anything else. They they don't really give you much insight, but you know there's an absolute monumental task that that has happened and planning that's gone into it. And I'm, I'm thankful that they've just brought us back to, playoff hockey this quickly over the summer i mean um i i and and i and i i suspect as as there are the, the biggest sort of risk was right at the beginning with all these teams in the bubble and i think as more teams get eliminated hopefully the risk will go down but i think they've done an incredible job and mike lynch i think about um the NHL and the bubble and how hockey really lends itself to a bubble model because the culture is so insular and everything is so tight-knit within that is it that big of a stretch to be in a bubble during the playoffs? It doesn't feel like it is compared to, say, Major League Baseball or another sport. No, I mean, ho- hockey guys are the best guys on the planet. They, if, if you tell them what to do, they'll, they'll do it and, and they'll march and they'll stay in line. Um, we here in Boston um, had Tuka Rask, the goalie, after, uh, right before Game 3, decided to opt out and go home and be with his family. And other than that, no one's tested positive and everyone's staying in there and it's working. And, Bill, I wanted to ask you... Um, uh, of all the experiences you had, uh, let's go teammates, coaches, teams you play on, is there one specific person or team or group that has sort of made you the guy that you are today, doing what you are doing right now as the COO for uh, Graydon Carter's Airmail? Uh, and I'm not just saying this because you're a Boston guy, but there's a guy named Paul Vincent who's uh, uh, sort of a staple in New England, and he's been a he ran summer hockey camps, and I think he still has, has that going. And he's been a skating coach and a skills coach for a bunch of NHL teams. And he was someone, 
and I found this, this, this is tough to find. He, he basically saw something in me that I, I, I don't even think I still, I know I don't see in myself. And so he, he would be the person what was never actually a coach of mine as far as like a, a team, but he surrounded himself with, with just hardworking people. Everyone that he, he coached was actually sort of in my shoes. It was never really a goal scorer. It was, it's never a guy you've, you've heard of for the most part, but it's, it's always the third, fourth liners. And so that's someone that, that has made a huge difference and impact, not just on hockey, but kind of on, on everything I do. Yeah. I mean, people in the hockey community always talk about how hockey teaches you life skills because most people don't make it to the pros. But what it does teach you is, you know, the hard work, the the teamwork, the relying on your teammates. Um, I know that Michael Barr asked you earlier about your Wall Street career. Um, it was at Deutsche Bank, which you mentioned, and you also turned that into a book as well called Discussion Materials. You ended up in, in that book, you talk a lot about how your hockey background played into your ability to talk with people in the industry. I wonder if you can just expand on that a little bit, the intimate ties between hockey and Wall Street, because it seems like, it feels like a lot of Wall Street guys played hockey uh, or followed hockey or, or, I don't know, they're a lot more tied to hockey than perhaps other sports. Yeah, absolutely. And that was certainly, that, that, was, that was a great entry point, especially going through the interviews I noticed it was much more in, in like the sales and trading that the trading floor, they talk about the locker room kind of atmosphere. And, and, you know, one thing that I realized, and, and I was not uh, in, in that division, but w- one thing I did realize is that it, if I had wanted to really be, I think, and this is why I left, I, I, I didn't want to really be in a locker room anymore. <laughs> I, I loved writing about it. And, and, but that's a very solitary thing. And, and I, I remember early on in the experience realizing that if I wanted to be in the locker room and, and have that, I should have just stayed in the actual locker room mm. rather than try to recreate it in another environment. And, and so that was it, 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 I, the only way I'd figure that out, obviously, is doing it. So it was logical to, to enter that world and give it a shot. But it just you also have to really be driven by what you're doing. And, and I loved winning and playing hockey and scoring and but but it wasn't the same way with necessarily watching the markets and doing deals. So it, it to me it didn't fully translate. But you, you didn't celebrate whole, deals with high fives and you know, I didn't. Wow! Didn't, I, I it was I just celebrated a deal with another pitch book. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but it was a great. It, it was it was definitely meet a lot of my peers for the most part. Were now some I still have some good friends. But it wasn't you know you do have to be like I was. The same way that you're in practice or you're in a game and you're, 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 that's where you are and you're lost and immersed, you know, you got to feel that way when you're in an Excel model at 2 a.m. And, <laughs> and I was lost in those models, but I didn't, I didn't lose myself in them. I want to talk about junior activities. You were obviously, you played junior hockey, and, and I'm big in youth activities. I don't care if it's junior football, if it's junior baseball, or junior chess. Thank God for me. But what, what, uh, what? Take us through that because I always believe that kids today they need that sort of activity, and I hope uh, we get past COVID nineteen here and we can get back full song with that. I completely agree, and seeing some of my friends now that have kids sort of on the brink. Luckily, most have have kids that aren't interested in hockey because I fear for for the parents knowing what it takes. Scarlett's well aware. 5 a.m. wake-ups, hockey yeah. tournaments, and um, crazy yeah. places. 5 a.m. wake-up just to go to a 
freezing cold rink. <laughs> but I, I think the, the core is just having, if the kid wants to do it, it's great. And, and I, I, I think if you just stress, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm having no understanding since I'm not a parent, but I think if you, if you come at it from the angle of this is, this will teach you this, that, and the other thing, that's a good way to scare a kid off. And I think those are just byproducts. And if you just, if, if they'll learn that if they actually like the sport and it doesn't have to be, I think, I think if you can just expose the kid to as many different things, sports, disciplines, arts, and, and figure out hopefully something sticks. I mean, I, I realized how incredibly lucky I was to find hockey, have an opportunity to do it and feel so crazed about it because I don't think a lot of people have that experience maybe until after college and they get their first job. So in a way it was sort of a, a blessing to find it. And, and yet it, it makes it more difficult then to, to find something to replace it. Bill, your book is often compared to uh, Jim Bouton's Ball Four, which was really a, <laughs> a revo- revolutionary book in the in the in the '60s. And you know, there's the old saying: "What happens in the room stays in the room." Did you uh, have any fallouts or any uh, rough discussions <laughs> with anybody <laughs> after the book came out? You know, luckily, he used real names me, in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, again, there you go. I couldn't. I remember writing some of those names and thinking, "I'll change them," and then you just forget to change them. And I, and I couldn't. I can't. It, for the most part, it's all real. I just, again, I can't make up, up any of this stuff, which is really why I wrote it because you couldn't make it up. And I thought it was so. It was. It just left such an impression. These memories were so vivid. As far as fallout, not, not particularly. I mean, my friends, you know, the, the beauty of hockey players, I remember when I told the one friend I played with in Sweden, and, and his first, I said, I wrote a book, and, and you're kind of front and center. And, you know, as you can imagine, because we lived right next to each other in, in the hotel where they housed us. But his, his only question was, like, hey, if you have a, if, if you're going to use a picture of me, can you use this one? <laughs> With the hair wax. <laughs> yeah, so so that's really what they're concerned about, which is kind of the beauty of the whole thing. There's that, that and that's almost why I wrote it because it's that type of person that is. It's just that you can't. That, that's there's no ego. There's no oh, wow, how did you portray me? Because because hmm. I'm hopeful it was exactly portrayed kind of who they were, which is how they'd want to be. Well said. I watched the movie, as I mentioned. Why um, is the lead actor not named you? Because your book is a memoir, but in the yeah. movie, it, it's a fictional character. I think it, it, one, of the, one of the things that we discussed, uh, so I had written an original draft, very kind of slapdash Microsoft Word document that eventually we tweaked, and I, and I ended up rewriting the final shooting draft with the director, and in order to, you know, we need to step away from the actual memoir. It was more about capturing the experience. Mm. And, and it was almost just being able to see a different name. So it's like, okay, maybe this didn't happen exactly to Bill Keenan, but to Bobby Sanders, which is the name of the lead character in, in the movie, let's have him take this route. So it's, it, it, it's, it's adapted, um, and I think it was just a way. Plus, he's so much better better looking than me it was just not gonna he didn't it, have quite the right hockey hair out. though he i mean he had like floppy <laughs> hair in front but it wasn't long oh, enough i in never the back. had it so, yeah <laughs> yeah well that's why i never made it no. <laughs> do you have a favorite hockey movie michael barr oh the uh, the paul newman one slap shot yeah slap shot oh i love that one that that is that, that makes what me about laugh. miracle miracle was good miracle was tough, good very tough to beat miracle 
Yeah, that's okay. true. And there's also Goon. I don't know if, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, we had a lot of time to watch random movies. Uh, Bill Keenan, were you thinking of different movies, hockey movies, and trying to steer clear of those as you were going through the process of adapting your book into a screenplay? I think I, I, I steered head on into most of them because that that's so much a part of the experience is watching the movies on, on the bus. I don't know how it works now with, uh, you know, every, all the new technology, but, but, but no, I, we, we, um, I, I, I'm sure subconsciously there's tons of stuff that we took. I mean, I've got references in there to the, the Mighty Ducks. I mean, that. so, so there's, it's, uh, no, I was, I was not steering clear. And I think, I think, uh, you know, one of, one of my big wishes for this is that Slapshot was, you, you, that, that is hockey to its core. If we can just get one kid on a bus, uh, on a trip to a tournament to stand up after they watch Slapshot five times and say, kid, whoa, let's watch Odd Man Rush. <laughs> Even if they tell the kid to shut up and sit down, that's good. That's a, he, knows, he knows the movie's out there. Bill Keenan, thank you so much, sir. And again, i got to go out and see the movie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. This is a lot of fun. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. We are here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Mike Lynch. You can catch me on Twitter at LynchyWCVD. And I'm Scarlett Foo on Twitter at Scarlett Foo. And my chess team's name was The Rooks. Ooh, uh, you're good listening. One. <laughs> you're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.